You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. And we're going to see this evening just how sweeping that that command is. And we're going to see what it looks like and how it's all ultimately rooted in the love of Christ toward His people. Right? I'm just laying this before you. Jesus is always at the center of everything. Right? Christ is always at the center of everything. He saves. He gives the grace to obey. He sets the example. He gives us the motivation for obedience. It is always, always about Jesus and what he has done for his people and who he is. Right? So a bit of context before we get into the verses that we're in this evening. Last time, last week, in verses 10 through 15, we saw the Apostle John establish the command like I just said, to love the brothers. And what he really did in those five or six verses uh, was he focused on the negative aspect of the command. What I mean by that is he focused on what not to do, right? Do not hate your brother was the big focus of last week's passage. Um, And John made this, this one concept, above all, he made it very, very clear to us, and here's that concept, that the world... The unconverted world system that is opposed to God, that is opposed to Jesus Christ, that is opposed to the Word of God, the world hates the church. And the world is hostile against the church. And he used Cain and Abel as an example of that. But over and against that, the church, the people of God, love the church. Right? So the world hates the church, but the church loves the church. That's the principle that we saw last week, and that if you hate the church, if you hate the people of God, then you yourself are probably not an actual converted member of the church, though you may come to church week in and week out. Um, So in light of that, last week, we, we may say to ourselves, okay, I see the need to love others. I need, I need the, I, I see the need to love my fellow Christians and not to hate them, but how? How do I love? Notice last week I didn't get super practical on how we are to love our brothers. But we might be left after that sermon, after reading that text, with how am I supposed to love them? What does that look like? And John answers us in this passage. So let's read these three verses. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the people who have gathered here. Thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you for giving us eyes to see and hearts to receive your word. God, I pray that you would increase that in your people this evening, that we may receive more more truth, that we might be changed, that if there are any unbelievers here amongst us, that they might see the love of Christ toward sinners and be converted, that you might draw them to you by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would do an act of sovereign grace in the hearts of believers and unbelievers gathered here this evening. Holy Spirit, please work alongside the Word. Please aid my weak preaching, because it's not in the words that I say, but it's in your sovereign work through the Word of God that's going to change hearts. So please do, do something mighty among us this evening. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so verse 16. I'm just going to, just heads up, about half this sermon, we're going to be hanging out in verse 16, all right, just so you all know. Uh, but yeah, so by this we know love. By this we know love. John is setting us up. He is about to give us an example of what love looks like. By this we know love. By this we clearly perceive what love truly is. That's what he's getting at. He's about to give us an example. We should have our, you know, our, our, our listening ears on or whatever. By this we know. And by this example, again, we're going to see love clearly. We're going to know what true love is. And before we get into this, the, the fact that God has revealed in his word what true love is, is a grace to us. So I just want you to, to, to get this in your mind. Uh, I, I've quoted John, or paraphrased John Calvin on this a lot. Uh, apart from the word of God, we're like blind men groping around in the dark, and we have no idea what's around us. We have no idea what truth is. We have no idea anything about God, anything about how life actually is. We can't really perceive reality rightly apart from the word of God. So the fact that the Word of God has revealed, that God has revealed, what true love is, is grace to us. Because as sinners, the natural man, as sinners, we may know a shadow of love. We might know a piece of love, see it kind of in a, a, a fuzzy reflection of love. But our hearts are so darkened by sin and selfishness that we would never know what actual love is apart from God's instruction. So this is a huge grace to us that the Bible over and over and again shows us what real love is because we're in the dark apart from this. We may see uh, a worldly view of what love is, but to see what actual love is must come from the instruction of God. Furthermore, this is, this is a huge grace to us. Um, John explaining what true love is is grace to us uh, because it is really helpful to us right now. Right? We live in uh, a, a cultural climate where, where we have lost any real meaningful concept of love. In our culture, love has been reduced down to mere emotion. How you feel about somebody, sentiment that you might have towards somebody. It's been reduced down to lust, being physically attracted to somebody. Ah, that's what love is because I really want to sleep with that person. No. Um, And oftentimes, love is reduced down to something very selfish. I love how this person makes me feel. I love what this person can do for me, therefore I must love them. That's selfish. It's very me-centered. We've lost really any meaningful definition of love. But here John says, by this we know love. He's about to give us, by the grace of God, a definition of what real love is. And we desperately, desperately need it. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Don't ever, please, don't ever grow tired of hearing this old truth. That He laid His life down for us. That He laid down His life. That should wash over us fresh every time we hear it. And if it doesn't, then we need to get on our knees before God and pray that He would ignite something in us that we might see truly the grace of God and the fact that Christ laid His life down for us. This is, this is a clear reference to Jesus, obviously, because Christ alone laid down his life in a saving way for his people. But John says, by this we know what love is, that this is actually what true love looks like. And how often, how often do we really truly reflect on that truth? How often do we sit 
and I don't mean this in an Eastern mysticism, Greek Orthodox kind of way, but actually sit and meditate on the truth. Christ laid his life down for me. And not just me, but he laid his life down for the church, for us. But I want to draw some attention to some specific words. All right, by this, we know love. Obviously, I've highlighted that enough. We can see it. That he laid down his life for us. Right, so no love, he laid down in us. So in his death, the Lord Jesus willingly, I want to accent that, he willingly laid down his life. This is a free will act. Christ himself said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to take it back up again. Right, no one took his life from him. He willingly did this, an act of his own volition. He laid it down. So I can't help but to see this. By this, we know love. An action. He laid it down. That's an action. By this we know love. An action took place. That's how the Bible always describes love. Is always in an action. Right? John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? God loved and he gave. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. So love always results in some kind of giving. It always results in some kind of an action. And the Lord Jesus willingly gave up his life for us. So I want to get that in our head. Yes, Christ, if you're a believer, Christ died for you, but not just you. We really, God help us, whenever we pray, we need to pray in an us kind of form more often than we tend to, and not in a me-centered kind of a way. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it's constantly, it's in the plural, us. Forgive us our trespasses. Give us our daily bread. Right? We need to pray in the us more often because Christ didn't just die for me, though that's precious to me. He did. He died for me, but he died for the, his bride. He died for the church. He died for all who would ever believe on him. But I wanted to highlight those, those few things, but here's a question. This is what I started thinking on this week. What all does laying down his life in love for us entail? What all does that entail? What are the aspects of Christ's love toward his people? And this is, none of my lists are ever exhaustive lists because I just ain't that deep and the Bible is unfathomable. Uh, So I I have three things. Again, not exhaustive whatsoever, but three aspects of Christ's love that I couldn't help but to think about in context of him laying down his life. And the first is this, his humiliation. And I don't mean being made fun of, but I mean in taking on flesh, in the Son of God, the eternal Son of God becoming incarnate, taking on flesh, Christ humbled Himself. His humiliation. Philippians 2, 3-8 through 8 is a very relevant passage, not only on the humiliation of Christ, but in light of the passage that we're in about loving one another. Philippians 2, 3-8. through 8, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the mind we're supposed to have. Think on Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Staggering. Have this mind among you, and here's the example of Christ. God became a man so that He could lay down His life for sinful men. I know this is super simple. It smacked me this week. He laid down His life for us. He had to become man in order to die. He had, to become, he had to humble himself in order to die for sinners. In fact, he humbled himself by taking on flesh for the express purpose of dying for his enemies. That's humility that we cannot fathom. That is staggering. That is the epitome of humility. Christ left his glory. I really want us to get a sense of his humility. He left his glory. He left heaven where he was praised day and night. The angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Day and night, perfection, no pain for him ever. Perfect communion with all of the heavenly hosts, everything. He left that. He abandoned his rightful position as the creator of the universe without laying down His divinity, but He left heaven, laid down His rights as God Almighty in order to become a human being. And again, He never gave up His divinity, but He did give up His privileges as God. And I'll lay this before you. Me and Cooley talked about this earlier this week. Christ's humility is not that it is so bad to be human. Human beings are the highest thing in creation. It's not that it's so bad to become human. That's not his humility. But Christ's humility consists of what heights he had to descend from in order to become human. He literally condescended to become human. Christ is infinitely humble. As we read in that passage in Philippians, in humility, Christ considered others more important than himself. There's no pride found in him whatsoever. He died for ruined sinners like you and I. He took on flesh that He might redeem His people who had rebelled against Him. This tells us that love, the love of Christ, is not proud. You guys have heard that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not proud. Love does not view others as too lowly to serve. Rather, love goes down to the level of another to do good for them. That's what we see in His humility. Two, another aspect of his love is that Christ not only laid down his life in death, but Christ laid down his life daily in order to serve other people. He denied himself, which is what he calls his people to. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Die daily. Christ laid down his life daily in order to serve others. He became a servant to all. So his love for us looks like servanthood. Consider this, for the 33 years that Christ was on earth, he lived as a servant. It's kind of twofold. His love for God made him a servant to the will of God. He was a servant in that sense, and that the will of God sent him to the cross where he willingly, and, and for the joy set before him, endured the cross because he loved the Lord. And his love for his people, his love for his bride, whom the Father had chosen for him in eternity past, made him a servant of the bride, the church, our best interest. He wasn't obligated to do so. This is all by grace. This was unmerited. There was nothing lovely in us. But he became a servant for us because he loved us. Not because we were worth loving, but because he is gracious. 
We see examples of this service in all kinds of things. In Christ feeding the multitudes. He served them in that way. In healing the sick, in raising the dead, in cleansing the lepers. We see the service of Christ in patiently teaching his followers who just never seemed to get it half the time. And yet, he kept lovingly, graciously rebuking them and teaching them more and more. The servant heart of Christ is most easily seen as he washes his disciples' feet in the upper room. Which was literally a slave's job. You know, the Lord God Almighty, Christ, the creator, the maker of these men, washed their feet, these sinners. Servanthood. Christ served all who came to him, from the disciples to the tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, and even those in power and authority like the Pharisee Nicodemus. Jesus Christ was a true servant out of love. But the prime example of his service to his people, and we should really hold on to this, is in his active obedience. And the fact that Christ didn't just die for his people, but he also lived for his people in their place. Obeying God's commands perfectly for us in order to give us his righteousness through faith that we might be judged based off of Christ's perfection, not our sin. Christ rendered this perfect obedience to God in order to serve us. Us who could never give the perfection that God demands. The servanthood of Christ shows us this. That the one who loves gives their time. 33 years. Spends effort. He walked in obedience to God. Gives of himself. He served all. And lays his life down daily. Those who love serve others. And then third, we see the prime example of love in Christ's literal laying down of his life. In a final sense. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. These are the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. That he laid down his life for his friends. And Christ laid down his life for his people. This is the supreme example of love. Christ laying down His life on Calvary's cross is the definition of love. Christ sacrificed Himself. Get that in your head. He sacrificed Himself on the cross in order to make propitiation for sinners. He was the priest and the offering. And He did this to satisfy the wrath of God for His people. He did this that we might be reconciled to God and saved from the penalty due to us for our sin. He did this to save us from eternal hell that we had brought on ourselves by our own disobedience. After living a life of total service, daily laying down His life, He gave the last and most precious thing that He could. He gave Himself. Christ Jesus gave His blood. He gave His very life. And He laid it down for us sinners in order to save us this supreme example of love in his death tells us that above all love is self-sacrificial it is an action and it is costly and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers but John says By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
We ought to be willing, is the sense that John's getting there. We ought to be willing to lay down our lives, to give the supreme sacrifice just as Christ did for us, and to be willing to do this for any other believer. This is radical. This is what radical Christianity looks like. God is calling us to a radical love for fellow believers, to literally lay down our lives for the brothers if necessary. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called. He's referencing suffering. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. We have been called to follow in the steps of our Master Jesus. That's why we're called disciples of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And hear me on this. All of God's people are called to this. All of God's people are called to imitate the love of Christ. This is not next level Christianity. If you have been born again, if you have been converted, if you're trusting in Christ, this is what you're called to. This is the call that we hear from Jesus in the Gospels. Go and do likewise. This is the call to go and do likewise, to literally die if necessary. This is a really high ideal, is it not? To literally give your life up for your fellow Christian if necessary. And if you're like me, I know, I think some of you are thinking, if not many of you uh, tonight are thinking, and that's this, I would do that. I would do that. I would die for my brother or sister in Christ. A lot of us, seriously, a lot of us think, I I would certainly die for my fellow believer if necessary. And I am not disputing that one bit. You probably could. In that moment, you probably could lay your, you 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 could muster the nerve to take the bullet, to take the knife, to whatever it is. You could probably muster up the nerve to die for your fellow believer. Now, there is only a small possibility you'd ever have to do that, though, right? Especially in America. Very small possibility you'd ever have to do that. But I'll tell you what we tend to do. We resolve in our minds. We read a verse like this. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And we, res- we resolve in our mind to die if necessary and say, I would do that if I had to. wouldn't want to, but I could. And then think that we're obeying the command here. And then, in the meantime, we go home and are content to live our present, comfortable, fairly selfish lives until that sacrifice is demanded of us. Got you, chief. I'll die for him, John, if I have to, but see you. I'm going to be at home. Um, That's usually how we look at a verse like this, right? This is how we simplify it and make it very easy to swallow and very easy to obey because that's what we do. I think everyone has a little bit of a lawyer down in their heart, and we don't want to see the broad, uh, all-encompassingness of the command. But John says, we're going to see in verse 17, John says, no, no, that is not what I'm calling you to do. The moment to express true love is now. Not just in the final way of dying, but now is the time to truly love your brother. Now is the time to lay your life down for them. And John, what he's going to do, we're going to see, he brings this high ideal of literal death for another person. He brings it home for us, and he brings it down and makes it intensely practical in our day-to-day lives. Not this abstract, I think I could if I had to kind of a thing, but he gives us right now application. So the principle of verse 16 is this. 
care for one another. No matter the sacrifice. Even if it costs you your life. Care for one another. Love one another. And John follows it up with this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So juxtaposed against the love of Christ, John lays this hypothetical situation down. Here's the situation. A brother has the world's goods, right, in excess. A brother, a believer, has more than they need. And John has in mind here, whenever he says the world's goods, he has in mind basic necessities like food, clothing, shelter, and he has an abundance of those things, more than what he needs. And this person who has the world's goods sees a fellow Christian in need and then refuses to help him. And John asks, how can the love of God abide in that person, the person who has the excess? That's a rhetorical question. God's love clearly is not abiding in that person. Dare I say it? God's love may, have, may not be abiding in that person at all. Not just that he's not showing the love of God that's abiding in him, but the love of God, he, that person may have not even come in contact with the grace of God through Christ. If they have that kind of a heart toward their fellow brother in need. Now, I would wager this. Because I was thinking about this this week. I would wager this, um, if I were a betting man, and I am occasionally. um, That was funny, come on. Uh, I would wager that few of us, if any, don't have our basic needs met. Most of us have our basic needs met. And i got to say this, uh, proud pastor right here. The few times that we have had someone, a member of our church, actually come in, in physical, like tangible need, where one of their basic needs wasn't going to be met, it's been really awesome as a pastor to see our small church come together and give hundreds, thousands of dollars to people whenever they're in need, and that's been awesome, right? But again, I would wager that few of us, if any, don't have our basic needs met. And since that's not much of a problem for us, and that's specifically what John has in mind here, what I want to do is I want us to get to the sense of what John is saying and see how broad it can go. Right? I, want to, I want to get to the sense of it. What's the concept that John's saying here? Uh, we get the specific, but what's the concept here? So he says, but if anyone has the world's goods, right? Has the world's goods. I would argue this. I want to broaden this out. If anyone has the ability to help in some way, I think that's the principle John's getting down to. That's the sense of it. If anyone has the ability to help in some way and sees his brother in need, that's pretty easy, and sees his brother needs help and They have the ability to help that believer. But the person who can help doesn't help and refuses to aid the one in need. John says God's love is not in that person. So if you can help, see that a believer needs help, and refuse to be there for them, God's love is not in you. That's what John's saying. Now this kind of help, again, looking at the principle if you have the ability to help. This kind of help could be literally anything. Right? This is huge. Any way that a person can be loved, any way that a person can be cared for, I think is what John has in view. Because remember, Christ's love is the example that he gave us in verse 16. And Christ has loved us in every way imaginable. He held nothing back from his people. So everything is in mind here. This could be simple things. Seeing that a, a discouraged believer and encouraging them. Seeing a believer in error on some doctrine and graciously and gently teaching them. 
Seeing a believer in sin and gently rebuking them and pointing them to the truth and their need for repentance. Seeing someone needing accountability and then holding them accountable to the Word of God. Seeing someone in need of a friend and befriending them. Seeing a physical need among believers and actually doing what you can to help. Knowing someone is in need of prayer and praying for them. I could keep going. It's all encompassing. The list goes on and on. Any way that a person could be loved, we are to love them and not hold back. We are to love with any gift, with any of the resources that God has given to us. And to think back on how Christ has loved us, we are to love in humility towards all, in servanthood, in any way that we can help, and self-sacrificially, even when it's inconvenient and costly for us. We are to love this way because this is how Jesus Christ has loved us, is it not? That's why we're to love this way. But John says something that really caught my attention uh, on Monday. It grabbed me from the first time I started studying this text. He says something really interesting in this verse. He says, if someone has the world's goods, yet sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him. That's a gripping phrase. So John says that when we refuse to love someone, when we refuse to care for someone that we see in need, and we have the ability to help meet that need or care for them in some way, that we are closing our hearts to them. That is an awful picture. The the vision that I get in my head whenever I, I read close your hearts is something cold, something dead, something reclusive, stony. The closing off of love. So hear me on this. When we don't love or care for other believers, we are not just too busy that day. Although that can be a legitimate reason. You know what I'm talking about. Whenever you're not really busy, but you're pretending you are. You're not just too busy that day. Or you're not just, well, I'm awkward and I'm not going to reach out to them because I'm just kind of a weird person. No, that's not what you're doing. It's not just, I don't feel like it today, or, you know, I'm just kind of an apathetic dude. It's not like that. John says we're actually closing off love from them. We're actually withholding the heart that we are to have toward them. That is ugly. That is ugliness. John says that God's love, therefore, cannot be abiding in that person. And I think he says that because that kind of disposition is contrary to the heart of God. It is the opposite of what God does. So hear me on this, Christian. If your faith is in Christ, hear me on this. God always has an open heart towards his people. Always. Even when it doesn't seem that way, we're told in Romans 8 that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even when it doesn't feel that way, God's heart is always open towards His people. Always open towards His church. This is encouraging to me. Think of the the, the myriad ways that God has an open heart towards us. He befriends us, doesn't He? Jesus Christ, after He says, uh, Greater love hath no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. He goes on in verse 14 to say, And you are my friends. And you are my friends. He befriends us. Those of us who are enemies of Christ, He befriends us. He hears us when we cry. He sees our pain. He hears our prayers when we cry out to Him. He meets our needs. He sustains us. 
He gives us the very breath that we breathe. He promises to take care of His people. He helps us in our weaknesses. He grants us perseverance to make it until the day that we die and, and, or Christ returns and go to be with Him. He encourages us with His Word. And He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. This is the heart of God towards His people. If we don't do the same towards His people, we are opening up ourselves to the charge of hypocrisy from God Himself. It's a scary thing that God would charge you with being a hypocrite, an actor. Because the true Christian has been born of God. And the true Christian will be of the same heart toward God's people. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God since you're His kids. That's what Paul says. Do what He does and walk in love like Christ has loved you. That's what He's calling us to. But in light of Christ's love and the love of the brothers, love for the brothers that is consistent with the love of Christ, John then sums this whole thing up with verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is pretty straightforward. Let us not show love like the world. In mere sentiment, in mere emotion. Let us not buy into that. Let us not love with just our words, saying that we love the brothers. Let us not do that, but let us actually love one another. Because sentiments and words is not true love. True love is revealed in deeds, is what John says. That's why John says, in deed and in truth. Show love truly in deeds. Truth means true love there. Show true love by deeds. A believer's love flows out of, this is beautiful, think about this. A believer's love flows out of and resembles the love that he has received from God in Christ Jesus. Because of that, our love will be exceedingly practical. Because it's based on the love of Christ. And Christ's love was exceedingly practical. Jesus actually did something. He actually did something. He didn't just say, oh, I love my people. No, He died for His people because He loved them. He saved us because He loved us. He acted from His love. It was exceedingly practical. Now I have three things that I want us to consider and, and chew on in light of our subject this evening. And the first one is this. John brought home the concept of love in verse 17. Right? He took it from this ideal to lay down your life, which is still binding and still holds. But then he brought it down to a very practical level and, and made it a right now day-to-day application. What John had in mind whenever he penned verse 17 was what he had in mind was our caring for individual believers among us, right? He didn't have an abstract love for the church. 
right? Like, oh, I love the church. He didn't have that in mind. He had individual believers being cared for in mind whenever he wrote verse 17. Not just the church with a capital C. And in light of that, I saw a really uh, great quote from C.S. Lewis in one of my commentaries. Here's what Lewis wrote. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That's profound. So what he's getting at is, whenever we say, oh, I love the church, it's a lot easier to say, I love the church with a capital C than point to a believer amongst us and say, no, I love that person. It's much easier to love the church as an idea than to love the people who make up the church. So I'll lay this before you. If we, if you, I'll point, to, I'll point to you, although I'm including myself in this you, if you can't point to individual examples of loving particular believers among your people that you associate with that are Christians, then you may be falsely comforting yourself with the thought, I love the church while loving no real individuals. You may be falsely comforting yourself with that. Because I'll lay this before you. If you don't love individual Christians, you don't love the church. You say what you want. If you can't point to ongoing acts of love that you are showing to Christians, then you don't love the church. You don't love the brothers. You can say, I love the church without loving anyone in particular, and that's your excuse for loving nobody. Beware of that. Two, the fact that Christ laid down his life for sinners. For sinners. His enemies. You and I. Hostile to God from the womb. That Christ would send his Holy Spirit on us to bring us from death to life after accomplishing our salvation for us in his life, death, and resurrection. That Christ laid down his life for sinners tells us that no one in the church is beneath us to love. If Christ could humble himself not just to save good godly men, because there was no such thing and there is no such thing on our own, but if Christ could humble himself to serve people who hated him, surely no one is beneath us. We do not pick and choose who we're going to love. We do not pick and choose. We are not to discriminate. We are not to show favoritism within the church. Read the book of James. We are not to show favoritism. We are to love the brothers, the group, the bride. We don't pick and choose who we're going to love and who we're going to ignore because Christ died for the church. Not just us and the people that we like but the church. Christ humbled himself to save ruined sinners like us, and that should humble us to serve all of his people. And then lastly, and I don't usually do this, but in light of verse 18, I have something practical that I actually want you all to do this week. It's pretty open-ended. Do a kindness for a believer. I seriously don't care what it is. As long as it's not sin, go for it. Right, do a kindness for a believer. Stop in at a friend's house. 
Shoot a message. Pray for someone and let them know that you're praying for them. Give someone a phone call. Invite someone to your home. Go pay for someone's dinner and take them out to eat. Do something. Do a kindness for a believer. Whatever it is that you can do. Whatever is in that realm of I can help. I can do this. I can be an encouragement. Whatever it is, do a kindness for a believer. If you know someone's really discouraged right now, go to them. Sit down talk with them. Have coffee with them. Do something. Do a kindness for a believer. And don't just do it this week. Right? Keep that going. Keep, this, keep the chain alive. Right? Don't just do it once and say, did it. Gotcha, pastor. Done. Um, but I specifically encourage you to do this. And this isn't just for the outgoing people. Right? So don't, don't play that crap with me, you introverts. <laughs> Sorry. I specifically encourage you to befriend someone in this congregation that you don't know. Seriously. Befriend someone in this congregation that you don't know. I can see the eyes darting around. (laughs) I can see the fear in your eyes. Reach out to someone that you don't know. Reach out to your fellow brothers and sisters that you don't know. Because we're called to love the body. And I'm not saying that we don't have our own close circle of friends. Because I do. If you actually read the Gospels, Jesus did. Peter, John, James, those are his homeboys, right? The other 12 were there too, but like those are the dudes, right? He, he didn't tell all of the disciples to look after his mother. He told John, hey, that's your mom now. You take care of her, right? Like he had his, his real tight people. There's nothing wrong with that. But in a church this small, there's no reason that, other, that, that every person in here shouldn't know every other person in here on some level, one, one level or another. So I encourage you, reach out. Put this text into action. Begin to love that person in whatever way that you're able and equipped to because you can do something. You might not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Put this text into action. Put legs on verse 18. The time to love is now. The time to serve one another is now. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray. God, thank you. Triune God, thank you for your love toward us. That you would would choose us in eternity past, Father. That Christ, you would come and accomplish redemption for your people. Holy Spirit, that you would apply the work of the Son to your people. Thank you for doing everything necessary to save us. Thank you for the word where you remind us of what you've done for us in Christ. God, help us to love the way Jesus loves. We are sinners. We are imperfect. We're never going to nail this all the time. But Lord, we can strive to love the way that you've loved us, Christ. Please help us. Give us kind hearts. Give us tender hearts toward other believers. Let us never close off our hearts or have hard, stony hearts toward our fellow believer, God. But let us have open openness toward them. That we would sympathize with them. That we would weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Let us be a people of encouragement. Let us be a people of kindness. Let us be a people of love because we have been loved so much in the Lord Jesus. Let us never forget His great love for us. Holy Spirit, stamp that on our hearts, please. We'll pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.